Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It takes a pandemic. Okay, you fill in the rest. For instance, it takes a pandemic for me to finally clean out my desk. It takes a pandemic to start reading that pile of New Yorkers. Uh, it takes a pandemic for me to finally learn to pay. Well, for audiences of live performance, it takes a pandemic to cherish our actors and musicians. With our great jazz venues and theaters closed, live performance has stopped. But actors and musicians continue to create. They have to. It's who they are. For this Hunker Down podcast, I talk with these artists who perform for a living about how social distancing is affecting their work now and when this is all over. About their dedication to the art of live performance. Playwright J.T. Rogers joins Hunker Down for a conversation focusing on his Tony Award-winning 2017 play, Oslo. It's a heart-wrenching telling of the back-channel meetings started by a Norwegian couple who successfully brought the PLO and Israeli leaders together to talk about peace on a person-to-person level. Of course, the Oslo Accords failed to bring any peace to the region. J.T. Rogers is a Tony Award-winning American playwright whose works include One Giant Leap, Blood and Gifts, The Overwhelming, White People, and Madagascar. Oslo won the Tony Award for Best Play in 2017, and it was J.T. Rogers' first Broadway play. Again, I I always thank Joel Bernstein for uh, setting these up. I've been able to talk in Hunker Down with some very interesting people. And I'm so glad that I got to speak. I'm getting to speak with you. I uh, read your play last week, and then we couldn't meet. And then I read it again this week. And both times I was laughing and crying and angry and all kinds of stuff. It's it's a brilliant piece and needs to be seen over and over again. Before Thank we get you. to talk about Oslo, the, the play that your, your play that won the uh, so many awards. Uh, let me ask, how are you dealing with uh, being uh, socially distanced? How's that, how's that going for you? I think as I was saying to a, a friend the other day, I'm, I'm fine, all things considered. You know, uh, I'm with my family. My father-in-law uh, died from COVID early on. It was very difficult. But my mother-in-law survived and she's good. We're, we've been spending some time in Cape Cod taking care of her. Um, the rest of my family is healthy. Most of my friends are doing well, and um, uh, but you know we were going to have a talk last week. Uh, this week is the world, or specifically our country, seems on fire. I, I'm 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 having a much harder time. Like I, I hope most of us. So yeah, it is a strange. It, the the we it feels like we're in a in a, a moment of profound transition and. Any thoughts about what is going to be under this side or just speculation? Certainly for me, I don't have any. I've sort of been humbled up and down yeah. by the sweep of everything. We spoke recently with some 
poets um, about, you know, whether or not this um, moment is getting into their writing, and I assume it's the same for a playwright like yourself, that you need to process what's going on and maybe eventually down the line it will. Yeah, I I have colleagues who are writing about it right now, and um, I think, which is remarkable. I, I don't really work that way as a writer myself, and I, I because I do need time to process. I, I need distance. I'm having an interesting experience where I'm I'm working uh, furiously on an enormous project, my first ever television show that I've created, and I'm the head writer and an executive on, and which is a first for me, and all all those are firsts. And so, it's very both depending on the day, both difficult and wonderful to have deadlines and enormous projects to accomplish. So sometimes, you know, you feel if you spend, sometimes you feel, well, what's the point? I, 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 the world is sweeping us all along and the video should think I'm so happy that I have something that is outside of myself that I, I need to accomplish. In some ways doing these, this podcast has kept me sane, uh, being able to reach out and talk. And so I, I think what I hear you say, being busy, it's just a human comfort thing. Oh, and doing good focus, work. Having a focus. Yeah. yeah, having a focus where you're pushing yourself and trying to do good work and trying to be articulate and distilling your thoughts and your words and working even in the Zoom world, working with other people and collaborating is feels hopeful and focusing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you you're, uh, are in Brooklyn, yes? No, I am actually in my house right now in Hastings on Hudson oh, okay. where I've lived for the last number of years right above the city good okay I was, I was wondering if you if you yeah. had seen uh, any any of the rioting going on but no, no it's very it's very strange I've I've just returned home today I've been in Cape Cod as I mentioned um, uh, with my wife and son and sister taking care of her mother um, who's very dear very dear to all of us and so uh, we have been sort of doubly isolated you know um in the middle of, in Cape Cod, in a house, an old house with land, um, in a wild land, and where, where even more than normal in Cape Cod, there's just no one, you're not seeing anyone at all. And so you feel hard in your throat and traumatized and galvanized by what's going on in Brooklyn, all over the country. How do I contribute? How do I support? And also it feels an ocean away. Yeah, and so it's a very and and you know your heart is heavy because I feel like my city is just going through the seven plagues of Thebes all at once, and it is so mm. painful. We live on the Upper West Side, uh, right on West End Avenue, and Ninety Second Street at the Windermere Chateau Hotel, and now they've cut off the street, so uh, most of the day there's no traffic below my window here because we just have walking on the street and it's kind of wonderful. Yeah. And I know, and, and some of my friends here who have been living, we've been living here for many, 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 many years uh, are kind of going out of town. They're saying, are you going out of town? I'm saying, well, no, I, I kind of like it now in the city in the sense that I feel like this is where it's happening. And I don't know, it's like, I almost don't want to go. Let's talk about your beginnings. You're a Missourian. Columbia, I'm actually, I'm actually, yes, I was raised mostly in Columbia. I'm from, I was born in Berkeley, California. Oh. in Northern California, where all my people are from, as it were. Um, but I, on both sides of my family, but I, my father was a college professor, now retired. Mm -hmm. And as one does as a college professor, you go, you scatter like the winds to where there's a position. So he, you know, born and raised Berkeley, California, college in Berkeley, 
went to Columbia, Missouri, which is the college town in Missouri, um, where the big, the big school is that every state has that phenomena. And so I was raised, I spent a number of seasons, years, pardon me, overseas living in Southeast Asia with him as a child when he was doing sabbatical so field research. So I would toggle between that. And then when my parents divorced when I was very young, my mother moved to the East Village when it was really very, very different than it is now. And so I would sort of had this, you know, in hindsight, remarkably fortunate experience of this pull up Clinton term out, you know, triangulation <laughs> of central Missouri, Southeast Asia, and the East Village in New York City. Wow. Very different places to uh, be inspired by in your young life and to be cultured. Yeah. By. Well, the thing that was so wonderful about it, again, in hindsight, right, you, you only realize these things in hindsight. As a kid, you go where you go, and if you, if you feel safe, um, you don't even think about it. You just live, you just roll with what happens. And so I was living you know, in, in a rubber tapping village in Malaysia and then in a rural village in Indonesia. Wow. And we, my, my father and my brother and I were there. And we were the only, in many places we were, especially in Malaysia, we, we were probably the first white people that a lot of people we were living with had ever met in person. And we were, you know, a minority of three in a, in a, mono, a mono culture. And it was great. It was difficult at times, as you can imagine, but it was wonderful for the experience and in the life of it. But also looking back, saying it was a remarkable kind of experience of really being the other, you know, that of of having an experience of being having everything you do had to conform to cultural norms that weren't yours and you 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 were the other. And it was um, you know, yeah. as a white American man, that was pretty great. What what what's experience. thinking back to then? You were very very young in Malaysia. What's one memory that just just when you go back there? Where do you go back to? Um, I remember one memory. You know, just speaking of that is that we had a schooling was you know difficult. If you if you um, spoke up or whispered or anything, you'd be taken from the class and have a ruler with the, with the. Not the flat end, but the side, the hard side edge. Whoa. Smash it on your fingernails. Not you know, the so white kids. About that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And you and some certain teachers would would I think one teacher was intimidated to have a foreigner in the class, so she I think understandable hindsight she would pick on me, right? Some of those friends aren't fun at the time, but it's 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 wonder. I'm so I'm really really glad I had them. Mm-hmm. Schooling quite a, quite a bit different than. When you went to high school in uh, in Columbia, Missouri, yes, yeah, there was no there was no Islam class in Blackbridge uh, <laughs> uh-huh. High School. Uh-huh. Um, so you studied Islam. Well, I was a, I was a child taking a class. You had an hour of English, you know, which was fascinating. English teacher was so traumatized that I was there as a native English speaker. So anytime I would use an American word like truck instead of lorry. He would just lord it over me because it would, he would prove that he was a teacher and not this you know, 10-year-old boy who was just trying to sink into the back of the room. What was his name? Um, what was his name? I don't remember. I'm too young. I don't remember. I'm, yeah. I have pictures of him. So, you know, you would take a, you would take a class on history and math and Islam. And, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a what we now use. This, we throw this term around Islamists, Malaysia and Indonesia. Was not a um, in any way. Um, what was the word I'm looking for? So I want to be precise. Not um, 
yeah, not militant, you know, for mm-hmm. lack of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. You know, this was a, um, but yeah, it, uh, anyway, it was just an amazing experience. You, I think, were first thinking about being an actor before you became a playwright. And I know you ran a theater for a short time. I did. I, I wanted to be an, an actor since I was a stage actor, specifically, yeah. <laughs> since I was yeah, I nine. It. Since I was nine. So I'd done that. I went to professional actor training program, you know, at the North Carolina School of the Arts. And then while there was writing short plays and having my friends and colleagues put them on and you had all, you don't realize the, the, how rare it is at the time because you're 20 years old, 21 years old, and you're getting these incredible facilities to just use. Stay up late at night, write short plays and put them on and everybody comes and you're you think, wow, this is this is magnificent. And then, so I just veered off a bit from into the cake making as opposed to the right, you know. right. What what do you see as the big difference having experience being an actor and now being a highly lauded playwright? What's the difference in the experience that theatrical experience? Well, uh, the obvious answer is there's one person you're behind this, you know, you're behind the curtain, and one's in front of the curtain. Yeah, um, but more specifically. You're as an actor. Let's just talk about stage right now, right? Uh, if you're a stage actor, you are b- interpreting something. You are the interpretive artist, as opposed to the generative artist, as the writer. If you're using a, you know, if you're using a, a model of someone writes a play and then someone performs it, but th- it's really you know right, being a playwright is not like being a poet or a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer or a journalist. It's a it's a very specific sort of mongrel hybrid profession where you are writing. But it is written, it only works if it lifts off the page as a spoken word. And I think that, you know, my only training as a writer was being an actor. And it was everything because you, you know, you, one of the reasons you write alone is you walk around in your little office or your little room and you read out loud and you perform all your parts because you have to hear it. You have to hear it because it work is the rhythm, is the cadence, is the, will it unlock emotionally what the actor needs to experience? Um yeah. Yep. I um, I it, it just it just occurs to me while you were talking about that that you do write great lines for actors. I, I mean, they they if, they work. If I do, it's yeah. If I do, it's because I was an actor. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and I'm purposely trying to beat out the meter of what people are saying and and you know, use the Shakespeare model of the idea comes at the end and you, a speech builds towards the final sentence. And, I want to get to, to give some, yeah. Go on. Yeah, just to give the actors your job, in a you know for the play to work, your job is not only to write the best play you can, but to write it in a way I think that you're giving the actors tools, you know, because you it's you're giving the actors tools so that they can lift the material and and run with it. Yeah, there's. I'd like to come back to some of those lines that you wrote, and specifically the ones that, as I was reading them, I my eyes would well up. And I want to talk about that later, that kind of emotional response to the reading of the play. And the two times I read the play, it happened at the same time. And I, I would like to get to that. In a speech to the New York City theater community in 2008 at the Laura Pell's keynote address, you explained why you became a playwright, that you needed to lift your eyes above your navel. And I'm quoting you to some of this, mm-hmm. to tell stories that dig under the surface of people and cultures that seem foreign, even scary. 
and find the connection between us to learn about and to learn about yourself to start a conversation. Does that say why? Does that say something about why you became a playwright? That's the intellectual reason, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's only always only half of it. And as I was mentioning in a different context earlier, it's only later that you realize things. You sound very. When you, when you when I hear something like that, I, I'm smiling. You read it because I thought, well, at the time, I didn't really understand. <laughs> I didn't really understand. It took a while. But look, every writer, if you know, searches to find their, you know, their their voice or their patch of grass to, to scratch at, right? So to find out what it is that that inspires you and what it is that where it sings when you're making it. And for me, I spent a lot of time writing Urzet other people plays, you know. And then I was able over time to writing lots and lots of plays that they weren't very good or okay. And some people came and nobody came. And you know, having no career or quotation marks whatsoever, but learning how to learning by doing how to be a playwright. I realized that I that I needed to write plays about ideas and 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 the world and things that the things that excited me in real life should be the things that ex, that I tried to wrestle with on stage as opposed to, you know, a two person family drama about the conflict between a mom and a son full stop. Now that can be fodder for an amazing play, but I'm not the right person to write that as I learned. Let's move on and talk about Oslo. It won many awards, including the Tony Award Best uh, Play of 2017. For those people who don't know what Oslo, the play is about, I thought we'd do a quick summary of it. I'm going to do a summary and you tell me if it's if it, if it gets to it. So in part, Oslo is the story of the back-channel events that led to the 1993 Oslo Accords. I remember that handshake between Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat with Bill Clinton, you know, beaming over them um, when those Israeli and Palestinian leaders were shaking hands. But that U.S. president had little to do with this agreement. And Oslo Accords, all of that hope for it, has pretty much been dashed. Would you say that's kind of what this play is about? Well, it doesn't, in a nutshell, yes, it doesn't go into, it is very particularly built around the events of the people who are behind the scenes hatching this idea, and then almost thriller-like, as it was in real life, secretly racing to try to create some sort of connection and document between the PLO and the Israeli government. But it ends, in essence, with the the moment of, there's a, there's a coda that's very important, but it ends, its dramatic arc ends with the, the signing. And then what happens afterwards is this, it's not the point, not what the play is about. The play is about the birth of this impossible idea that actually happened. I mean, it's also about the potential of it happening again or something like it. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's interesting, right? You, you bore down and you, if you're writing a play set in a particular historical moment, I find that in order to make it sing, again, to use that word, you, you have to create incredibly tight, incredibly quite box around it. What are the events you're going to talk about? Nothing else can be talked about. There's no references to the present day. That's, you know, verboten. And yet so often people will see a play and say, oh, this play was about, uh, in this case, Oslo, this play was about two groups of people coming together in an exact moment in time, an exact house, exact political, cultural context. And yet, oh, but it also means this. And it also means that. Um, I mean, I'm in no way, what I'm about to say, I'm in no way going to compare them, but I was always struck that Arthur Miller would talk about, you know, his play, uh, The Crucible, is done everywhere, every day, 
all over the world. <laughs> and he'd seen endless productions where he would be introduced to a, a political prisoner, a formal political prisoner in the nation that he's seen the play, who's profoundly moved. And on more than one occasion said to him, I'm so honored that you wrote a play about me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so honored that you would even think to write a play about my specific experience. You know, that's a pretty great. That's the, that's the best example of that sort of rippling outward I can think of. I would like to take that rippling outward to, to Oslo also, but not quite yet, because I think this play certainly ripples out to where we are right now uh, in, in 2020. How did you find this particular topic, this particular issue? I know it was brought to you by Bartlett Share, the director. Yeah, Bartlett Share, who's the resident director at Lincoln Center and now my longtime collaborator for multiple projects. Um, we had just, we were, had a play of mine up and running at Lincoln Center called Blood and Gifts. It was about diplomacy and politics and the sort of spy war behind the war, the secret spy war behind the war, the Afghan-Soviet war. And Bart knew a Norwegian diplomat, a formidable Norwegian diplomat named Taya Rod Larson, and another his spouse, equally formidable, Mona Mona uh, Yule, and they met through their kid on the you know the pitch of the local you know school soccer field as they cheered their kids on, and he brought in to talk about what it was like to be a diplomat in the Middle East for the actors when we were doing Blood and Gifts and. Taya was, um, I, you know, I, I learned, we went out and talked and Bart said, you've got to interview, talk to him and find out, you know, he's got these things happening. We should push and prod and find out what they are because I think you find them fascinating. And so that he was my entrance way and my gatekeeper, as it were, into this story of how this, the real man I was having a drink with across from Lincoln Center that night, uh, that he and Mona Yule and other Norwegian young diplomats um, hatched this idea in collaboration with young members of the Foreign Service in Israel and the PLO to come to a guest house, you know, royal guest house in Norway, secretly, and sit across from each other, the Norwegian, I mean, the Palestinians have the Israelis, and drink Johnny Walker Black and find out about those families. And then, you know, try to find a way to put the past behind them, at least at that table, and hammer out some sort of agreement. And you had never heard you know, about this. Like, you had never heard about no, this. No, I'd never heard about this. I, I, I was so stunned that I hadn't because I, you, you know, a, you know, politics junkie and history junkie, and and you discover that on one hand it's completely unknown in this country, and I, like so many people, just assumed as a young man watching it out of the blue, seemingly out of the blue, be this rose garden signing ceremony that Clinton oversaw. That oh yeah, well of course we did that. You know, that, what a triumph <laughs> for American you know, diplomacy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they very shrewdly asked the Americans to do it at the end because they knew how much it would mean if, if we, in quotation marks, were putting our muscle behind it, Yeah, which is obviously a very different political world than we live in now. Uh, but but what's, you know, the thing that, it, look, you're, you're always looking for good stories or, or ideas or images as, as a playwright. And the thing that really knocked my block off as I was hearing this of just the vague outlines of the real events was the theatricality of it and the ideas and the, and the stakes. So you can't, you got a life, literal or figurative life and death stakes are what you need for me, at least when you're writing a play. And I remember talking one day in rehearsals of the production in New York, the first production, saying to the actors, the, the thing you need to understand is this event that we're, you're performing, you know, your character is risking and, and involved in, it's the equivalent. Can you imagine if in the middle of, um, you know, 
the example I use, and there's others now, but they said, you have to imagine what, what would it be like if the, if the Americans, you know, found out that the George W. Bush administration was secretly meeting with Al-Qaeda. That is the emotional stakes of what, what you know, this was happening. And some people, certainly on the Palestinian side, were concerned they would be killed if the word got out they were doing this. So you, you put all that in a stew and you think, well, those are the ingredients. I think I can make something. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. I, I would imagine you're sitting there at the table with Taya Larson, uh, Norwegian uh, exp- sociologist, expert in diplomacy, and just going, the feeling must have been like, this is my next play. I've- yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it's not the first time it's happened, but it doesn't happen all the all the time. And when it does, it's 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 treasured, right? It's like, yeah. like the hairs going on the back of your neck or a thunderbolt. I would, I would, I would imagine just everything else disappears. Preparing to write, do you do a lot of research, uh, and you traveled all over to do this research? Can you talk a little bit I about did. that? I did. I did. I went to Norway. I, you know, I, I made it very, you know, Larson and then other people I met were very helpful in Norway. But then I made it very clear that you know, obviously, no one was going to ever see. You know, they could come see it when I opening night, but they weren't going to be involved in the process of you know the actual writing. But they introduced me to people. I got to see the actual grounds and the estate where it happened. I met the groundskeepers and you know, one of the two still living secret service agents, you know, that are in the play. Those are real, you know, everybody in the play is my version of a real person. Um, Does that, the the woman Toral, was she still around? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Her, her daughter came to see the play when it moved to Broadway. Did you get to taste her waffles? Um, I met, I met, no, I did not. I met her, <laughs> but I did not get to uh, taste her waffles. Pre-waffles. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I and I had been in the Middle East extensively a few years earlier, researching a project that I ended up not writing for the National Theater in London, which is my creative home over there. And you think of a time, oh well, I can't believe I didn't work out. I'm, you know, I, I, bad on me. You know, you're a terrible writer. And then all of a sudden, a couple years later, you think, oh my, that whole well of information and interviews and images I have now they can feed into this new play. So you're not, it's ever wasted those kind of trips. You know, then I made a very distinct plan after my first physical trip to Norway to not interview any more of the living participants because I wanted to read everything they had ever said and read their memoirs and read transcripts and, and books more and more. But I wanted this, you know, the engine of a play is the, is the human voice, it's the rhythm of the human voice. And so I wanted to be able to create those rhythms so that I was making a play that was mine as opposed to a docudrama. You know, and I set rules, for example, that, you know, I would hear about one of the one of the participants would do X as, you know, vivid image that multiple sources would repeat. And I think, oh, I can make it. I can make that character. But I want to create the rhythm of you know, my own. But I I would make rules for myself. That, for example, I, none of the characters in the play, none of my versions, you know, of, the, of these real people. Who I started to feel, you know, I used to start to fantasize they're actually your only your character, not yeah. <laughs> not the real person, which of course is sort of a trick you play with yourself as a writer, so you can have the freedom to do it. Is nobody could articulate ideas that they did not believe that the real person did not believe. So if someone was in, had a very strong political or passionate argument about X, they couldn't. My version would need to still hew to that. I wouldn't be having them believe something very different because that that felt tricky and un, it wouldn't be right because there would be people lots of people who would see this play and they would know it's a fiction they would notice that the other however 
as the play presents itself, it's all based on real events, sometimes down to granular detail. I didn't want anyone to come away being like profoundly misinformed. Right. So the 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 facts as you presented them and the facts that you presented are are true. Happened, yes. They happen. Yeah, the pl- the plot of the the wildest events, I would think I'm trying to think, you know, this sort of the wild even some of the jokes are my are my polishing of, of jokes that were not told that well in people's autobiography. You know, and I don't mean that critically. You know what I mean? They're not they're not autobiography. They're political autobiographies. Yeah. They're not <laughs> yeah. they're not breezy, you know, breezy after dinner essays. And it was just fascinating how many specific details were repeated by multiple different participants. So people would argue dramatically about who really was responsible for setting it up and then who was what 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 happened afterwards and why but the sort of bones of the, the order of events and what really happened in those nine months it was amazing unanimity of agreement which was great for me because i felt oh well then i can use those as my building blocks and not worry too much that i'm mucking it up yeah 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 um it, it, it there was a lot of history there that you had a winnie down or structure into this into this uh, two three hour play, um, I, I I mean I was very impressed with how clearly everything was presented. I mean we have this history, and uh, I'm going to assume that's the way it happened pretty much. But then you also get into this theory of gradualism, which uh, Ty uh, Larson was advocating for. I found that idea of people to people who actually hate each other get together and they talk. That was so exciting uh, that that's possible. And I love that as part of the theme of your play. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, he, when I would interview people, I just remember an interview I gave, he gave me talking about what, you know, what made you, I would, you know, I remember asking what, what, what on earth, what on earth made you think you could do this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's let's put all this aside. I mean, it's just a hotspot. And he laughed and said, "Yes, yeah, so absolutely." But he talked about, in his own words, about this idea of gradualism that he, had, that he, he, you know, as a young sociologist, he totally believed in it. He believed in it. He yeah. knew it would work. And so, you know, that's interesting. One of the passages, there's a speech about it in the play, and that was one that just endlessly, I reworked endlessly, endlessly, endlessly to sort of get the ideas clear, but also make it entertaining and push the story forward and all those, you know, all those things that need to happen all at once in a, in a play to, to click. One of the things that I found most enticing about this was that though they hated each other, the Israelis and the Palestinians, um, both the, uh, the government officials and those who weren't the government officials, they knew each other. They knew who uh, the other was. Um, in a sense, they almost came from the same culture. And um, well, I, I, I would say this way, I would say, yeah. you know, I'm always sharing, you know, making sweet, like they, they, this, I'm, you know, I, I think what's interesting about it is that the reality of the, was that as is so much, you know, politics is so much more complicated than we present, all, you know, in sort of black and white terms is they, there was, you know, there were members, there were people in the Israeli government and the PLO that hated each other truly, there were others that were in lockstep conflict, but had sympathy, not sympathy is the wrong word, but understood that something would have to happen because neither side could win in quotation marks. But what's interesting about it, and, and, and 
was the smallness of the world or that part of the world, the interconnectedness of it, is that you could that, that they knew each other, they knew about each other as individuals intimately, even if they had never spoken. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating is some is one of the characters says in the play, which is true, is that he had never, you know, the, he had only he only knew the Israelis as the enemy. He had never met an Israeli face to face, which this, I just found. This is Query. Really this is the uh, Kure, PLO yeah, finance Ahmed, master. Ahmed Query. And he talks about it in his autobiography, um, which it, it fascinated me. Clearly, they, they, they knew each other because they could actually imitate each other. I mean, there's one beautiful well, they got, scene. well, they got to know each other. I mean, that, you know, it, uh, I also pause because, you know, I, I don't feel, I'm not, I'm not a historian who can, you know, go into the greater detail of this and the other. But as I have in the play, in my, my fictional play is that they were all, they talk about in materials of, that are written by different people who were there is that a number of them delighted in doing impersonations and they got to know each other and do impersonations of each other. And then, you know, these sort of iconic figures on either side, like Rabin, like Yasser Arafat, of course they knew who they were. And so they, you know, it's that thing you can sort of, you can let your, they were finding ways to let their hair down with each other because even though they were, what was interesting is that you were, they could be fighting ferociously screaming at each other in one room about borders and security and history and bloodshed, and then they could go and let up steam and have a lovely dinner, and then go back to fighting. I mean that that, that just that, that doesn't that happen. Just, that, that doesn't happen in uh, diplomacy. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, it happened then, so it did. Yeah. It can, you know. I mean, I think, I think that, I think what's interesting about this story, the real story, which captivated me as a dramatist, is the risks that were taken by the individuals and that they were by seeing their enemy as a person and getting to know them and in some cases actually really liking them as people that they found themselves changed. You know, they personally were changed by that. And I, I, that moved me very much. And, and, and then they, even though the accords didn't um, last, uh, their effect didn't last, they, some remained friends for the rest of their lives. I, I absolutely. Right. And, you know, that's a larger question about whether, you know, what it's such, from the moment it happened, uh, there was a heated debate about whether it should have happened, whether you know, the Norwegians were on the Israeli side, which, uh, you know, uh, which they claim they weren't. And I don't see any evidence of it. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a historian, but I think, you know, it's not really a topic for us to talk about because people have written books about it. But the yeah. question is what, what, you know, there was definitely an element of people were, so starved for something that the Hosannas that greeted this were out of proportion. It was, this was document was a plan to make a plan. It was not a, you know, a peace agreement that ended all conflict. And I think in a weird way, the media put forward, it was more that it was more than it was. And then, you know, and so many, you know, the assassination of Rabine and I mean, so many elements, but it, it's, it is heartbreaking to see how things are in such a dark place right now. This, but it doesn't mean, it, you know, I'm trying, like all of us, trying to be optimistic right now. I am yeah, in a yeah. very dark time. And I yeah. think that the thing that this story to me is, what's interesting about it is that this came like a thunderbolt of change, a positive change. And there will be another thunderbolt. Uh, and, we, and what happens will be just as strange and surprising in a different way than this one. May it, may it, may it come soon and may it be positive. You know, clearly, this is not a, a, a history piece. I mean, it's based on history. But the thing that that just buoyed me was the possibility of enemies talking to each other. 
This play was produced uh, right around the time that the great leader, that's what I called uh, President Trump, was, was elected. Audiences uh, that saw Oslo for the first time on Broadway um, were kind of reeling from uh, the change in the administration. And in, in getting response from audiences, did anyone make a relation, you know, relate what was going on in our country to, to what was going on in the play back in, in, in the history of, of Oslo Accords? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, in, in, in the States, it was all about Trump. In London, it was all about Brexit. Um, in uh, the National Theater in, in Seoul, South Korea, it was all about the unification or non-unification of North and South Korea. I mean, fascinating. The play has now been done all over the world. Uh, I guess it changes how people uh, from different places, how they see it. Um, has, it been, has it been shown in, in Palestine? In uh, in Gaza, uh, it was done in. It was not been shown in Gaza, which I very very much want to help happen. Uh, it has been done at uh, in Israel last year, um, and uh, and so now and it's been done the, in Norway. So the so two of the three points of departure, let's say, um, and I would very much like to see it done in Gaza. Yeah, that would be fascinating. It would. It would. There are jokes in this play. Uh, and in your acknowledgement, you, uh, in fact, jokes is one of the ways that that uh, people come together. Jokes and food and liquor, uh, how these, these men came together. And in your acknowledgement, you acknowledge your father and one of the jokes that he told. And I was just curious, because you don't say in the acknowledgement, um, your father, Marvin L., um, Rogers, that he told these great jokes. I'm, I am going to guess that the joke in the play that your father said was the one which says, I'm all alone. Was it that joke? Um, no, that's, that's a joke that's told by multiple sources that was told in, uh, in, in the room uh, in, between those people. I made it my own, but, but uh, yeah. But um, yeah, look, it's, I'm a playwright. I'm a playwright. Yeah, I want you want things to be dramatic and fun and humorous. And I, I get bored in the theater if there isn't humor. I get bored when I'm writing if there's humor. So I, I do want to because a lot of this is not, you know, I sit down to write. I'm a play. I'm not. Um, there's an element of, of enormous research and then intellectual rigor. But ultimately, this you fall on your nose and what's exciting and what's funny and and where you, what are you surprised at as you write it and you you know try it out and you rewrite it. It's it's a it's a much more um, messy, emotive process than, you know, it's not in any way, you know, a, a, a uh, writing a thesis. Yep. Yep. Can I share with you three lines or maybe two that I found most? Sure. I found, okay. <laughs> sure. All right. I won't get a chance to do this, you know, any other times I do it. And I'm not sure who said this, but uh, I just love the cadence of it. Two men in a room extend their hands and history begins to change. That's one of the lines I just went well, like, yeah, you know, from your, from your mouth to God's ear, um, especially now. Another one, Savir, uh, who was the, um, he was an Israeli um, foreign minister, yes? He was, uh, um, he was worked high up in the foreign ministry. He was sent by the foreign ministry as the negotiator. All right. And this was after meeting um, the PL representative query uh, for the first time. And it's a toast that he had with 
uh, Taya and um, Mona, the Norwegian uh, who brought them together. It says, to the future, may it be different, and may it come soon. That also is like, yes, from, from, from him up, you know, let that happen. And then at the end of the play, Larson says, um, this is the, the, the coda to the play, there on the horizon, do you see the possibility? Good. All of that reads to me as a play that is telling me there's hope in, in, in the human struggle. And the hope is in, not just between the peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis, but the hope is in people, two people getting together who are not of like mind and being able to talk to each other, being able to see the other person. I'm going to present this to you. I don't see that happening here in this country. I don't see that opening up in this country. I realize we're out of the area of the play now, but this was the end of your play. Good. This could happen. Could this happen? Could it? You mean, you mean in the future? Here, in the future? I mean, how, what, what, how do you see it? How do you see our, our, our future? I, you, you ended the play saying, good, there's hope there. Is yes, there? I did. I did. And I, but what are you asking? Is there hope for us? Yeah, I'm really bringing it down to where we are living right uh, now. I, I fervently hope that there is hope. Let's put it that way. I, I'm not being cheeky. I'm, I'm an, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. You're, the act of making art is optimistic. So there is that in my DNA. But I am. It is. It is a very dark time. And how long this will go, and how far it will go, perhaps even more. Uh, I don't know. I'm frightened. I'm anxious. I'm, but I'm also determined and trying to and pushing forward, trying to make things that are positive and trying to to be a part of the solution. And but it's difficult. Even as I speak to you now, I find myself falling into platitude and speak because mm-hmm. I don't I don't have any answers right now. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I'm a playwright, not journalist, is that you can ask questions. You should be asking questions as a playwright, not not giving answers. Yep. There was talk that Oslo would be made into a film. Is that still on the works? Yes, that is in the works. I, I want, don't want to jinx it, but yes, it's going very well. Okay. All right. Then we won't. Then we won't ask uh, yeah. any about any more yeah. of that. Uh, <laughs> but it goes well. It goes okay. Well. All right. The other thing that occurs to me in thinking about Oslo as a film, uh, not whether it's going to happen or not, just kind of two two different ways of presenting these ideas, these dramatic ideas. Yeah, yeah. Isn't theater the better venue for Oslo? And well, is there a place? A play. I mean, <laughs> I know, no, 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 but I mean, is there a film? I mean, I, what I see is the film becomes kind of this, um, this, uh, you know, terrorist and it becomes kind of dramatic. Why would I write that? I've written the p- film. The film has been written. The film is my film version of the play. Okay. All right. So no, but there's nothing more to talk about until the film gets made. You know what I mean? It's okay. just, uh, um, but no, the film will be uh, my, I wrote the film and the film will be my reinterpretation of my play as a movie. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I had asked you if it was possible, if you could read something, for us uh, to end right. up this podcast. I, I, my preference is Larson's speech to the audience at the end of Oslo, but if you have something else, I'm ready for that. Uh, yes, I, I'm, I was going to read something else, but I'm, let me go. <laughs> uh, 
I gotta put me on pause so I can go get a copy of it. That's all right. Can you do that. All right. Yeah, me? sure. Yeah. No problem. No problem. I'll be all right with you. Hold on. The end of the play of Oslo. Mona and Larson are alone on the stage. We've seen the triumphant moment of the signing of the on the White House lawn. But then we've had a coda where we find out what's happened to the individuals in the story, many who died, some were assassinated. And the political trauma that's happened since. And now they're alone on the stage. And they and the audience are sort of reeling from this. And Larson turns to Mona, his wife, and says, Mona, tell them. Without the Oslo Channel, there would be no Palestinian authority. We, all of us together, we made the eventuality of a Palestinian state accepted by the world. We helped the Israelis safeguard their future. Taya, she tries to interrupt him, but he continues. Without Oslo, there would have been no peace between Israel and Jordan. No withdrawal of Israeli forces from Lebanon, of Israeli forces from Gaza. Taya, she cuts him off. I am trying, but even now I am struggling to know if what we did, how we did, was right. He looks at her and says, then I will tell them. And he turns to us. We created a process. Seeing all this, is that not clear? A first step without a roadmap. Mistakes and foolish choices, of course. Of course. But we began. My friends, do not look at where we are. Look behind you. See how far we have come. If we have come this far through blood, through fear, hatred, how much further can we yet go? There, on the horizon, the possibility. Do you see it? Do you? Good. End of play. J.T. Rogers, playwright of Oslo. That was that was pretty brilliant. Um, th- thank you so much for uh, for reading that for us. I, uh, I I I feel honored that I got I got to hear you read that, and we'll put that out for other people to hear it too. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to talk with you, and I I, I appreciate the interest, and I I hope that um, it's of some interest to those of us out there you know, in our quarantine world right now. And, uh, but I appreciate the interest. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. And stay safe. You too. Thank Be you. well. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hunker Down Podcast, conversations with actors and musicians about their lives on stage during a pandemic. If you have any questions or suggestions, please contact us at UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. That's one word, Upper West Side Radio at gmail.com that zoom wave that just is like well, I'm leaping I'm going <laughs> I'm leaving. Oh, really Bye. really I, I am going okay here we go I'm ending it okay, bye